All right, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation 18. I decided just to continue on with our exposition this morning, and next week we will come to more of the um, relevance, try to put a few pieces together based upon uh, the way that I interpret Babylon to be. I have attempted over the uh, last week, and then I will attempt into this week, to try to give you per- some perspective on what Babylon might be. Certainly, um, there's no consensus on this, nor do I feel like there has to be a consensus on this. However, as we studied last week, what we came to understand is that there's a definitive spiritual apostasy aspect to Babylon, right? There's spiritual apostasy. There's a spiritual aspect to Babylon. Now, as we step into Revelation this week, Revelation 18, we're going to find that there's a definitive economic aspect to Babylon, uh, that there is a political aspect to Babylon. Now, some people believe that religious Babylon and and economic Babylon are two different Babylons. I do not believe that to be the case. Uh, I believe it is the same Babylon, and what I hope that that uh, I hope to express to you today, and I hope that you'll at least understand it. Again, you don't have to agree. Is that as we're looking at Babylon, very similar to the way we might look at Antichrist. When we look at Antichrist throughout the the revelation that is given on it, we see Antichrist definitively as a man. Right? He has to be a man because of these elements that someone has to place himself on the throne in the temple. Someone has to commit the abomination of desolation. He's called he regularly in Daniel. He's the eleventh horn. And yet simultaneously, as we look at the other things, even as we studied last week with the beast, right, as the eighth kingdom or the eighth mountain, right? There were the seven mountains and then the beast is the eighth. We saw that, that there is some sort of institutional aspect to Antichrist, uh, the, the wound that is healed. It may be a physical individual wound or it may uh, be, as we talked about last week, the beast that was and is not now and is to come. There may be some historical aspect to Antichrist where this man or this system is resurrected from an older time and that is what stirs people to say that this is one who was dead and is alive. Uh, maybe it's both. Maybe the man has a physical wound that heals as well as there's an institutional revival. And we see some muddying of the waters between the idea of Antichrist as a man and Antichrist as an institution, right? Well, we see the same muddying of the waters with Babylon. We see some elements of Babylon that are very city-like. And uh, we see a type-anti-type relationship. We'll get into this a little bit today, more next week, between this particular passage of Scripture in Revelation 17 and 18 and Jeremiah 50 and 51. And of course, we'll get there um, in a little while as it relates to Jeremiah. We're on Jeremiah 17 right now, or uh, actually... 15, 16, 17. We're in 15 tonight. Um, So we're a little ways off of Jeremiah 50 and 51 still, right? But at the same time, uh, there is this this type-anti-type relationship between the physical city of Babylon in Jeremiah's day and the Babylon as it exists in Revelation 17 and 18. And that lends us to this idea, very similar to the type-anti-type relationship between Antiochus and Antichrist, that Babylon of Revelation 17 and 18 might very well be a physical city. And I'm going to make the argument next week a little bit more about that and what physical city that might be. Simultaneously, however, we do see Babylon as an institution. There's a reflection of it as an institution, as, as something that has slain the saints from time immemorial. 
Well, Babylon hasn't existed for the past 2,000 years, and yet saints and followers of Christ have still been dying. Does that mean that Babylon has completely fallen off the scene? Or is Babylon also an institutional spirit that follows in many kingdoms where they bear the heritage or the legacy of Babylon in the way they rule, in the way they lead, in every generation? Are there kingdoms that reflect the spirit of Babylon, that reflect so that Babylon is as much a lineage as it is a city? Just like John says in 1 John that the spirit of Antichrist is already working in the world, even though Antichrist himself has not yet been revealed, the man of sin, the son of perdition. So we have this, this, this metaphorical thought and this literal thought, and I don't think that they, they come into conflict with each other. I think that both are, 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 are able to rest simultaneously next to each other. I think the spirit of Antichrist can function in the world, Antiochus can function as a type of Antichrist, and there can be a literal Antichrist an actual man, and an institution that he runs. And I think that there can be a city of Babylon going all the way back to Babel. And I think that that city can extend all the way into Revelation 17 and 18, though it, it, it's not necessarily in existence right now as, as a city of Babylon. And the spirit of Babylon, this spiritual and economic merging, this spiritual apostasy can function in every age. And we can have ancient Babylon be a type of a, of a future Babylon and that none of that has to contradict with itself. So as I walk through today, I'm going to be starting to presuppose my own, my own um, interpretation on this. Uh, and to whatever extent I presuppose that, of course, if you're not with me on that, then, then those parts aren't going to make uh, as much sense to you uh, from, from that perspective. But I'm going to presuppose that as we talk about Babylon, we are talking about a merging of a political, economic, and a spiritual institutions where there, there's a, a religious element, there's a political element and an economic element, and they work hand in hand. They're not necessarily the same, but they go hand in glove. I'm going to assume that Babylon is a literal city in Revelation 17 and 18, but that it is also the culmination of a system that has been in place from the days of Babel, perhaps before, although Babel is where we see the origins of this in, in its modern form. And that as all of this pieces together, we're going to see this city become the archetype, become the, the absolute climax or the apex of the system that has been attempting to function and has been functioning in every age. And most of that I'm going to have to prove to you next week. So let's do a quick review of what we talked about last week. Last week we saw the seven heads um, of what, what we... we we identified a beast, right? This beast first came up in Revelation 13. It had seven heads. It had ten horns. And then we saw in Revelation 17 this woman that rides a beast. And this woman is the mother of harlots, the great whore, a mystery Babylon, the mother of, of the abominations of the earth and of the harlots of the earth. And so there's a spiritual fornication idea. And she's riding a beast that has seven heads and ten horns. And the angel describes what it is that we were looking at, that the seven heads represent seven mountains, which may be literal. So many believe that Rome will be the, the, uh, the city of Babylon because it's the city that sits on seven hills. But we understand that while there may be a literal idea to the seven mountains, there is most certainly a figurative idea, because the angel told us explicitly these seven mountains are seven kings, right? 
seven kingdoms that have come, five of which have come and gone by John's day, one of which was in existence during John's day, and one of which would be for a short time coming after John's day. The beast would be the eighth mountain, as it were, or the eighth king. And the Bible says that he was of those seven kings. So he was in the same line, the same spirit as those other seven kings. And he would have ten horns. The Bible says that those ten horns are ten kings which do not yet have a kingdom. So these would be kings which were contemporary with Antichrist. Not necessarily kings that existed in the days of John, certainly not in the days of John. Maybe they exist today. Maybe they don't yet exist, but that there would be these 10 kings that are contemporary with Antichrist and that would give their kingdoms, would give their will, would throw all of their effort into Antichrist, into his ambitions. Uh, We compared this to Daniel chapter 8, where we learn of the 11th horn when he arises out of the fourth beast, right? And that 11th horn, as he rises, plucks up three of the other 10 horns on that beast's head. And we recognize that of those 10 kings or of those 10 kingdoms, something is going to happen whereby Antichrist plucks out, destroys, envelops, engulfs something, three of those 10 kings of those 10 kingdoms. We began then to identify the woman which rode the beast, recognizing her to be an institution of spiritual importance. She would ride the beast, right? Just as she had ridden, she sat on the seven hills, right? She sat on the seven mountains, meaning that she rode the the, the kingdoms of the earth. She has always operated within the kingdoms. So uh, we're looking perhaps for kingdoms throughout history, five of which were before John's day, one of which was contemporary in John's day, one of which would come after John's day, Whether that's happened yet or not, we do not know. Uh, But seven different kingdoms whereby there would be a a merging of political, economic, and spiritual apostasy into one system. And we talked about some possibilities, right? We talked about the possibilities as it related to um, the image that... that, Daniel saw or that Nebuchadnezzar saw in the days of Daniel. Uh, Those four kings were Babylon, Medo-Persia and Greece and then finally Rome. And then we said, well, there's there's um, at least two kings then that must be before Babylon if those are the kings, if those are the mountains. And we talked about maybe Assyria, maybe Egypt. Egypt would certainly fall into the realm of having, you know, the God-king-like structure. Assyria, perhaps not so much. Maybe it's thinking of the, the um, Nimrod's kingdom back in Babel or even the pre-Diluvian uh, age and, and whatever um, came before the flood. All of that's kind of up in the air. We can throw some ideas in there, but we really don't know, and that is most certainly fine. However, what we know is that this woman, this this woman, this woman of spiritual apostasy sat on those five mountains and rode this beast until such time as at the time of the end, the ten kings, these ten horns who are loyal to Antichrist will destroy the woman. They will destroy her They will burn her with fire. We're going to see much of that same imagery in the destruction of economic Babylon here. That that um, that's going to burn with fire. That it will be destroyed, and so it, it it lends itself to the idea that these are perhaps the same institution. And it's the destruction of Babylon, this destruction that the ten horns will levy against this woman that we are reading about in Revelation 18. 
we will see here the dualistic nature of Babylon's influence upon the world, not just as a, a spiritual apostasy, which we saw in, seven, in chapter 17, but also as an economic force when it is destroyed. Now, last week, we considered that nature and identity, that will be vital for our context in this vein, that I believe that the Babylon of Re- Revelation 17 is the same Babylon of Revelation 18. Again, not everyone believes this. Um, some believe that they're two separate institutions. But let's dig into Revelation 18 and we'll, we'll um, walk through the text today. The Bible says this in verses 1 and 2. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen is fallen and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. So after John sees the vision of the woman sitting upon the beast and, a- and after the angel describes who these kings are, how they, they uh, interact, what the relationship are between them, the Bible says an angel having great power comes down from heaven to earth and the earth is lighted by the glory, the glory of this angel lit up the earth. And he cried, Babylon is fallen. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Uh, very reminiscent of that first time we were introduced to Babylon in Revelation 14, where the same thing was said. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. The repetition showing emphasis and the significance of the words that he's speaking. And, and the city is described having fallen as being a habitation of devils, the holds of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. The idea behind this description is that Babylon has been reduced to absolute nothing. Whereas it once was very influential, whereas it once was very powerful, now it has no power, no influence, no usefulness. And once again, this lends to the interpretation that at one time it did have power, right? It did have influence, that it did wield economic political and religious power. And that makes complete sense if this is a system, if Babylon is a system of economic, political, and religious power. So verse 3, we, we glean more of this and we begin to see the links between Revelation 17 and Revelation 18 that causes me to believe that this is one system, one city, one entity that we're talking about when we talk about Babylon. Verse 3, For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. So we see that this same woman who is spiritually unfaithful, the same woman who has caused the kings of the earth to drink of the wrath of her fornication and to make the nations drunk with the the wine of the wrath of her fornication, uh, this is spiritual apostasy, is the one that has also made the merchants wealthy. So there is a merging here, right? This is where we begin to see this merging of, of, of spiritual apostasy with economic power. There's not a nation upon the earth which has kept itself from the spiritual, economic, and political rebellion of Babylon. This system is described as having made merchants of the earth rich. And so we have two important characteristics of the system described here, which we'll substantiate with our observations next week. First, the spiritual component, as revealed by the fact that they are committing fornication. Spiritual fornication there. Spiritual unfaithfulness. Second, the economic component. 
indicative of the fact that the merchants of the earth are made rich by her. So don't lose that, that we do see those two components brought together into this one description of this woman that was called in the last chapter and in this chapter, Babylon, a definitive component. Verses four and five. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven and God hath remembered her iniquities. It is in this that I wish, uh, this, this is where I regret teaching chapter 18 before I kind of put the pieces together. It's the right way to do it. Uh, but at the same time, I want to I preach next week's sermon and this week's sermon together. I just, I just don't have three hours um, to be able to do that. So um, next week, this, this, I would encourage you after next week to come back to this portion of Scripture I'm going to, this portion is going to become much of our application today. It's going to, we're going to talk about it as I interpret Babylon to be a spirit that has, has been existing in every age. That would mean that, that the spirit of Babylon is still at work in today's world. We can find it in the world and the culture that is around us. Again, this is going to become more obvious next week. But that being the case, when, when the Bible says, come out from her, ye people, this is not just for the people of that age. This, this is for us as well. The spirit of Babylon, wherever it exists, God's people are called to come out from her. We assume most naturally that the voice is God himself. Who else in heaven has people? Right? Come out, my people. No angel is going to say, come out from them, my people. Uh, we aren't any angels' people. Angels don't have people, right? So this is God speaking. Come out from her, my people, God says, that ye be not partakers of her sins. Why? Get away from the city. Stay away from this system. Come out from her. Don't be a partaker in her sins because all those that are partakers of her sins will also be partakers of her plagues. Those that get into her sins will also receive the same consequences as, as, as her. Anyone who drinks of her fornication will experience the effects of that choice. So God's people are called to come out of her so that they are not tempted to be partakers of her sins because if they partake of her sins, they also partake in her consequences because the God of heaven sees and knows and is not well pleased with the spirit of Babylon. Verse 6, Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works. In the cup which she hath filled, fill to her double. This is a very interesting verse, and we need to park on it for a moment. God has been speaking to his people, right? That would be his followers. And he has called them to come out of Babylon and to separate themselves from Babylon. And then God says to his people, reward her as she has rewarded you. Even double unto her, double in the cup which she has filled. Now, the cup would be the wine of the wrath of God, right? The wine of the wrath of her fornication. That's the cup contextually. That, that she has filled the cup. And he says to give them double, reward them as they have rewarded you. The you here, in consistency with the King James translation philosophy, is second person plural, a group of people. It would be the, if it was one person. You means multiple people in the Greek. And so this indicates that God is still talking to his people. When he says reward her even as she has rewarded you, 
We, we would believe contextually that God is speaking to his people and telling his people to reward Babylon in the same way Babylon has rewarded them. So now we have to understand what it means that God would say to the people, come out from Babylon and then reward her as she has rewarded you. We regularly think of the idea of rewarding someone in a positive sense, right? That someone does something well and I give them a reward. But the word, in fact, does not necessarily speak positively all the time. The word, in fact, just means to repay or to give that which is due for a particular action. And so here, when we read the word reward, we would naturally interpret the word reward to be in the negative sense, right? Not in the positive sense. Don't give them something good for what they've done to you. Uh, rather, give them something bad for what they've, ha- what they've done to you. But that doesn't make full sense either, does it? Because of what the Bible says about us not rendering evil for evil. Right? So how do we deal with that? And in order to deal with that, I want to dig a little bit deeper into this Greek word, the word that undergirds reward, apodidomi. The word in the Greek is used 51 times in our New Testament, and it not only carries the idea of recompense, but it carries the idea, as you can see there, of delivering, selling off for your own gain, or, or giving over. And this is important. The idea that the word carries with it the concept of giving something over. Keep that in your mind. Let's look at a couple of of examples of how this word is used. In Mark chapter 12, verse 17, the Bible says this, And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. That word render there is this idea. Give over to Caesar what is his, right? Let him have what is his, and you you give God what is his. Give, Give Caesar his, give God his. Let him have it. Give it over to him. Render it unto him. We see in um, Romans chapter 12, verse 17, recompense to no man evil for evil, provide things honest in the sight of all men. So once again, this idea, don't give over evil for evil. Uh, The idea here of giving back or delivering something, don't deliver back, don't give back evil for evil. So the natural questions then are these. What is it that Babylon rendered to God's people? Well, we know what Babylon has rendered to God's people. The Bible says that they are drunken with the blood of the saints, right? That's what we talked about last week in Revelation 17, that they are drunken with the blood of the saints, that they are, they, they are the foremost martyrs of the saints as it relates to biblical teaching. Well, surely this is not what God calls his people to give back, right? He's not calling us to create a great uprising into to kill everyone. Because even as we just read Romans chapter 12, verse 17, God's people are called not to render evil for evil, but rather to be good unto all men. And furthermore, the whole point of Revelation chapter 17 and 18 is as we read it, it is our recompense, right? God is destroying Babylon, and he's doing that because we haven't destroyed it. He's doing that because we have not rendered evil for evil, that we have suffered evil, And because we have done that, then in this day, God is going to recompense them. God is going to destroy them, right? So why would he tell his people to do it if he's going to do it? Indeed, he wouldn't. He would not tell his people to destroy Babylon. That would, in fact, be contrary to what he teaches us about not rendering evil for evil. So what does it mean, then, that God's people are supposed to give back to her? 
we glean a little bit greater context from verse 7. The Bible says this, How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she said, saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. So the text describes how this Babylon system and this city has glorified herself. She has lived in luxury and selfishness by implication living in contempt for the way of life that defines the true, the, the believers in, in God, right? The believers of God are to live in selflessness. We are to live dead to self. We are to live in a manner whereby the things of this earth are passing, are fleeting. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through, as the song says, right? We are strangers and pilgrims on this earth. Whereas Babylon, the manner of Babylon, the system of Babylon, the mindset of Babylon is to live deliciously, right? Is to completely bathe myself in this world, in the material world. And so there is this contrast between the way of Babylon and the way of life of humility and of selflessness and of restraint. So God tells his people, give her torment and sorrow. Because she has fooled herself into thinking she's a queen and not a widow. The contrast here is intended not to be a slight on widows, but in that culture and in that time, naturally, uh, for a woman to lose her husband was to lose her source of influence, her standing in society. A woman was defined by her husband's success and honor and standing in that society. So to be a widow would be, by implication, to lose your influence, to lose your standing, to lose your power. So God says that Babylon has convinced herself that she is a queen when in fact she's really a widow. She's operating as if the world is hers when in fact she has no power. And this, the Bible says, will bring to her torment and sorrow. Does this mean that it's, God's, it's the job of God's followers to attack this system? Does this mean we should meet force with force? Well, no, it cannot. We've already mentioned that such a command is both unnecessary and it's incompatible with God's word. But if we put all of this context together, I think an acceptable, biblically consistent meaning kind of bubbles up to the surface. In verse 4, God initially commands his people to come out of her, speaking of Babylon, and not to be a partaker in her sins. He then says, give to her as she has given to you, and then give her torment and sorrow in verse 7. And what I believe God is saying is this. The system of mystery Babylon that dominates the world and rejects everything that Christ stands for operating freely, excessively influential in the world, the culture and the economics and the politics, the mindset of Babylon, spiritual fornication, material lavishness, self-aggrandizement and luxury, and the philosophy of Babylon scorns everything that Christ stands for. Babylon mocks humility and compassion as weakness. Babylon scorns temperance and self-control as manipulation and foolishness. Babylon despises selflessness and meekness. And wherever the spirit of Babylon dominates, it must, by its nature, reject the spirit of Christ. And so what I believe God is saying in these verses is not hurt them like they hurt you or hate them like they hurt, hate you. That's unbiblical. But rather... Reject their system with the same passion that they reject your system. 
reject the spiritual fornication of Babylon with the same passion that Babylon rejects spiritual truth. Reject the allurements of materialism with the same fervor that Babylon embraces them. Give her the torments and the sorrows. Yield them to her is what, what I believe that means. Let her have them. When, when the Bible says that we need to to, uh, in verse 6, reward her as she has rewarded you. The idea there being let her have the natural consequences of her sin in the same way she has tormented you. Give it to her in- entirely. Come out from her. Don't go down the path of destruction with her. Let her have that path. Don't dip your feet into her waters. Don't be drawn into her allurements because you'll be drawn into her plagues. And those plagues are meant for her, not for you. So give them to her. Let her have them entirely. Stay away from them yourself by staying away from her. If she wants double, let her have double. With the same passion that she has hated your love for the truth, come away from her with that same amount of passion. And this interpretation is not only contextually consistent, but it's consistent with the language being used. But unfortunately, it is also historically consistent. As we've studied Babylon, we've studied her not only as a literal city, but as that system that has operated in the world. And again, I'm presupposing that at this point. Uh, Within my method of interpretation... I believe Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18 to be a literal city, but also to be a, a spirit, a method of living, a, a system that has operated, as the Bible says, this woman that rides these seven kingdoms that have existed for uh, five before John's day, one during John's day, one after John's day, into Antichrist. Antichrist is of those seven kingdoms, and Babylon rides them all. This economic, cultural, political, religious system that craves power and luxury and self-gratification and lust and all the works of the flesh. Babylon is a system defined by these things and those who commit themselves to these things reap the negative benefits. The consequences for pursuing a life of selfishness, of sin, of pride, and of evil are great in the heart of man and in society. And we know that, right? We've seen that. You can see it. You can see how even the society within which we live is craving meaning, is craving purpose, is craving something, and they're not finding it. They're not finding it because they've rejected the source of light and of life. But here's the thing. If we consider Babylon as the cultural, economic, societal, and religious apostasy and lavishness of various kingdoms throughout history what we find is that Christians are quite constantly throughout history allured by Babylon, aren't they? As God says, come out from among them, my people, and be not a part of their plagues, we find that, that this exhortation has some, some, some emphasis to it because as we look through history, Christians have done a pretty bad job of coming out of the evil parts of culture. We live in a culture that scorns Christianity. Mock Christians constantly. Whether it's the things on television or various movies or video games or whatever it might be. Not just in theme do they not represent the things of Christ, 
But in many of these forums, they actively and proactively mock the principles of Christ. They scorn the principles of Christianity in the seats of culture. In various elements of culture, we who follow the word of God and desire to do so are considered hate groups, eco-terrorists, child abusers, any number of evil people for what we believe. But for all that they hate us, we are called to love them. And yet we're not called to be a part of them. We're not called to partake in their lies. We're not called to modify our beliefs to appease them or to pacify them or to try to find some middle ground with them. There's a strange allure to the manner of living that is Babylon and has caused many Christians of any number of generations to seek to live in agreement with her. And so we change our churches to be more acceptable to her. And we change our homes so that we're not mocked by her. And we bring her entertainment into our homes, just try to ignore all the ways that she scorns us, mocks us, the open and overt disdain that the spirit of Babylon has for us, our manner of living, for what we believe, for the God that we serve. And what God is saying to his people here is come out from her and don't be a partaker of her evil. Let her have the fullest consequences of her evil. Don't be a part of what she's doing. Don't share, not only in her sin, but thus by not sharing in her sin, you won't share in her consequences. Give her torment and sorrow. Let her have those. Let her have those. Don't play around with it. Don't be given to it. Don't compromise with it. Don't yield to it. Because the philosophy of Babylon, wherever it has come about, brings with it the consequences of that philosophy. So we read in verse 8, Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord who judgeth her. Wherever you see the philosophy of mystery Babylon, you should also see the end of that philosophy. The end of that philosophy is death and mourning and famine and burned with fire. That is the end of that philosophy. That is the end. When you see it in culture, when the principles of mystery Babylon, the ideas of spiritual uh, apostasy and lavishness and materialism and selfishness and self-aggrandizement and all of these things that are of the world, when you see those things in culture, they are alluring to the human heart, but we need to understand that the way of those things is destruction. God will exercise his strength in the destruction of this woman and of the city which represents her and the philosophy which defines her. Verses 9 and 10. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament her when they shall see the smoke of her burning standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. So recall Babylon is destroyed by God, but God uses the ten kings that are in league with the beast, right, to affect this judgment. There are these ten kings who are 100% loyal to Antichrist, and it would seem as though perhaps around the midpoint of the tribulation, perhaps a little bit further, it would seem as though at some point these ten kings, along with Antichrist, decide that they do not want to anymore have the influence of this woman who has sat upon these kingdoms since who knows how long. They don't want her influence over them anymore. 
Maybe this is the point where the mark of the beast comes in and all of these things where this political economic system that has been in place forever, merged with this religious system, are torn down so that Antichrist can put his own system in place with him as God and with the mark of the beast functioning as the means by which to have economic prosperity. We don't know how all of that's going to go together. Um, but, but these will not be the only kings on the earth, right? These ten kings will not be the only kings on the earth. And to that extent, we recognize that all of the other kings, all of those who are not 100% sold on Antichrist or who are, who are not fully invested in his system, uh, are going to mourn. They're going to mourn the fall of this system because they benefited from this system tremendously. They loved this system. They benefited from her philosophy of self-gratification. They were a part of the spiritual system of fornication. The most powerful people on the earth are always the ones that benefit most, right? And so the most powerful people on the earth, as they see this system that has always worked in their favor, as this system crumbles, they are going to mourn. But the Bible says they're going to mourn afar off from her for fear that perhaps by mourning near her or by associating with her too closely, uh, they will become a part of her torment. They might be torn down with her if they are not careful. So they mourn her as the mighty city, but which very suddenly is brought to an end. Let's read verses 11 to 14. The Bible says, And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more. The merchandise of gold and silver and of precious stones and of pearls and of fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all thine wood and uh, all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood and of brass and of iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men and the fruit that thy soul lusteth after are departed from thee and all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee and thou shalt find them no more." At all, So it will not only be the kings of the earth that will mourn in the context that they have lost all of their luxuries, but it will also be the merchants of the earth, the one who sold and, um, and bought those luxuries, those that drove the economy. This verse speaks of monetary exchange, gold and silver and precious stones, of luxury goods, of linen, of purple and of silk and of scarlet, of luxury materials, of fine woods and of fine um, uh, of ivory and of brass and iron and marble, of luxury foods, wine and oil and flour and beasts and sheep, of the economy of war, what often people call the military-industrial complex, right? Uh, chariots and horses, of the economy of people, of slavery and the souls of men. These are all methods of money-making. These are all methods of money-making. These are the methods of money-making in the world. These are the goods that are exchanged. These are the things that go back and forth. And Babylon was at the heart of this. Babylon was at the center of this. This was the system where the merchants were made rich, where the kings were made uh, um, uh, uh, lavish, where they, where, where they gleaned their lavish luxuries because they had the money to do so. And the merchants lament because the system that has been in place that allowed them to be the gatekeepers of all of that money, the merchants that, that were, were able to be the gatekeepers of buying and selling, uh, that were able to keep uh, um, the value of things at a certain level to make a bunch of money, they are going to mourn because that system is going to crumble. And again, that may have something to do with the mark of the beast, 
Um, when it's instituted, it may not, we, we can't really know. But the kings of the earth generally mourn. The merchants of the earth mourn because these are they who, to this point in world history, have most benefited from this system. The system that is in place, as it has always functioned, even as we speak of, uh, of different, di different economic systems, whether the feudal systems or the capitalistic systems or whatever the case may be, the system that is in place... Some have benefited larger quantities of people than others, but one thing is for sure, merchants and people in power have always done just fine in every system that man has ever devised. It all carries with it the spirit of Babylon, so that makes sense. Verses 15 through 18. The merchants of these things, which were made rich by her, shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. And saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour so great riches is come to naught. And every shipmaster and all the company in ships and sailors and many as trade by the sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of, of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? So just as the kings did, so too do the merchants that they stand afar off during the destruction. The idea most likely being that though they are mourning for the loss of the system, they are disassociating with the system because they're deeply concerned that they don't want to be torn down with it, right? So they're standing afar off and the, um, the, the merchants and then the shipmasters are standing afar off. We'll talk more about that in a moment. As we see the definition of Babylon here, and um, people read about the fine linen and the purple and the scarlet and the decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. It is for this reason, among others, we've talked about the seven hills upon which the woman rides. Uh, again, it, it is for this reason that many people will pinpoint the Church of Rome as, as, the, as Babylon, right? Because we see this idea of lavishness and purple and scarlet and um, these, these colors and, and the, the extravagance that the Church of Rome has very characteristically um, displayed, particularly in its halls of power. But that, again, I would remind you, and I'm going to try to make this point more next week. I believe that the Church of Rome is a part of Babylon but is just one of many different manifestations of it as it relates to history. And so I believe that we should see her as a part of the whole, not as the, the centralizing figure um, of, of it, though, of course, you're more than, more than free to disagree with me on that. So the, the kings and the merchants, they stand off, uh, far off during this destruction. And there's certainly a physical element to this, right? But there's likely an implication that as this system falls to pieces, they are just going to disassociate themselves with it lest they be associated with her fall rather than with whatever's coming next. And there's a particular emphasis in these verses upon the ships of the sea. We see this here, and then we see it again in verse 19. The Bible says this, And they cast uh, uh, dust on their heads, this would be the merchants and the, the shipmen specifically, and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness. For in one hour is she made desolate. We read in verse 19 of the merchants of the earth weeping and wailing and living in deep mourning because 
All that had ships in the sea were made rich by her, and now she is desolate. Now, this emphasis upon the ships of the sea has led many to believe that if there is a, a physical city of Babylon, that it must be by a port. It must be a port city because of this emphasis upon the ships of the sea. But I would encourage you, if, you've, if, if you believe that or if, if you've, if you've uh, found interest in that claim, to read this again. Nowhere in these verses does the Bible imply that she is a port city only that the ships of the sea mourn when she collapses. And this is a big difference. Nowhere in this text, nor, nor in Revelation 17, does the Bible say that the city is by the sea. The emphasis upon the ships of the sea is not actually contextually meant to tell us that it is a port city. Rather, it's meant to tell us that the primary means by which goods are distributed is deeply affected. If we look at how... Um, how imported goods got around the world. The, the heavy import of goods did not really, is never able to actually pick up in any particular area of the world until such time as that area gets ships. It is by sea that importation is the easiest. It's very difficult to import things from other countries by land. You talk about the idea of traveling by land across mountains and ranges and such uh, between China and Europe. Why didn't China and Europe already have a thriving trade economy before, before the world was circumnavigated by ships? It's not because China and Europe aren't attached. It's just because it's really hard to get stuff from China to Europe across the land significantly easier, significantly faster to get things across that kind of distance on ships, right? Ships are and have been and still are a primary method of getting things from one side of the world to another, the sea. And so the idea of all of the shipmasters mourning does not have to imply by any means that this is a port city, only that this city is a hub of the importation of goods from around the world. And if that's going to happen, who is going to be most affected among the merchants? The ships, the shipmasters, those who are doing the importing and exporting to and from this city. Importing of goods does not only happen on the coast. And just because the, dex, the, the text does not speak of going from the coasts to the city, if the city were inland, speaks nothing as far as where this city is located interpretively. And so when you read about this and you read people say it has to be a port city because of these verses, I'd encourage you to read the verses in context to understand that it's really not saying that. There's really nothing in this text that demands that it's a port city at all, but simply that the shipmasters, the primary method of import and export around the world is touched, is affected heavily by the destruction of this city and of this system. The context doesn't rule out that it's a port city, but it doesn't even really demand or imply it in any way, shape, or form. Verses 20 and 21. The Bible says, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. So this system which has martyred the saints, the system which has mocked the saints, the system which has scorned the church, this system has now come crashing down. God has avenged the suffering of the saints upon this city and upon this system. Now, as we mentioned last week, 
Verse 21 shows the strong, uh, excuse me, um, we, we didn't mention it last week. We're going to mention it next week. This, this, uh, um, excuse me, th- this passage shows a strong prophetic link between Revelation 17 and 18 and Jeremiah 50 and 51. And I want to look at one particular passage today. We'll look at more of them together next week. In Jeremiah chapter 51, verses 63 and 64, the Bible says this, And it shall be when thou hast made an end of reading this book, that thou shalt bind a stone to it and cast it into the midst of Euphrates, and thou shalt say, Thus shall Babylon sink and shall not rise. And then we read in Revelation 18, verse 21, about a mighty angel taking a millstone and casting it into the sea. It's not the same thing, but we see a parallel here. It's a fascinating parallel, and it's fascinating what God told Jeremiah to do. Can you imagine Jeremiah is now toward the end of his ministry, right? We're in Jeremiah 50 and 51. There's only 52 chapters in Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is writing these prophecies down, and God says, when you're finished writing this prophecy down, I want you to take that thing that you just wrote, and I want you to wrap wrap it around a rock and I want you to throw it into the Euphrates River and then rewrite it again, of course, because we have it today, right? So there's a lot of writing that, that, that kind of uh, got lost there. But the idea is that he is throwing it into the river, casting it into the Euphrates, Euphrates River as a sign that, that the, the prophecy is true and that Babylon will be destroyed. It will be cast away into the waters where it will not be found again. Now take note. Jeremiah is prophesying that Babylon will be cast away forever. And yet, Babylon really never fulfilled that in history in the way that Jeremiah prophesied it, which is one of the reasons why I believe that there might be a type-anti-type relationship happening between Babylon in the Old Testament and Revelation 17 and 18. We'll talk about that next week. But in Revelation, we see a very similar idea, right? That an angel casts a millstone into the sea... And why a great millstone? Well, because this is what Jesus said should happen to those that offend his followers, right? Recall back in Luke 17, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, Then said he unto his disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he be cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of, those, uh, one of these little ones. Many people interpret this to mean don't offend children. But when we were preaching through uh, Luke chapter 17 uh, some time ago now, we made mention specifically of the point that that is not contextually what Jesus is saying here. Contextually, Jesus is not speaking directly of offending small children, as it is often interpreted. Just prior to this warning, if we read the Matthew passage, Jesus likens his followers to little children. That's not even in the Luke passage. He says, whosoever would humble himself like a little child is the greatest in the kingdom, right? So Jesus takes children, puts them on his lap, and says, whoever will humble himself like these children will be greatest in the kingdom. And whosoever accepts one of these little children, not these little children on his lap, but these little children, the ones that accept him, in Christ's name, whoever humbles himself before Christ receives Christ himself. And it is within this context that Jesus warns and he says, whosoever offends one of these little ones, not the little children that are sitting on his lap, but one of those who comes to him by faith, one of those who accepts Christ as his Savior, and therefore causing their faith to falter, leading one of those little children, one of his little children, one of those believers into sin, harming their faith, 
It would be better for them, Jesus says, that a millstone be hung around their neck and they be cast into the sea than that they cause a believer to be offended in their faith. That's, that's what Jesus is saying in Luke 17. And this is important because Babylon, the Bible says, not only slew the, the saints, which is pretty offensive, but they also are the hub of spiritual fornication, right? Causing people to go after her and to apostatize from the true and living way. So Babylon is the, the poster child of offending the little ones. And that's why it's a millstone that the angel is throwing into the sea. Because it would be better that Babylon have a millstone hung around its neck and it be cast into the sea than that it offend the little ones. But it's been offending the little ones for generations now. And so at the end, quite within the vision, John is literally seeing a millstone cast into the sea showing that Babylon is the hub of this offense in the world. There's no greater offender to the followers of Christ historically than the spirit of Babylon, not just in persecution, but in convincing those weak in the faith to follow her in spiritual fornication. And so this millstone being cast into the sea is symbolic of the justice that Jesus declared in uh, Luke 17 and Matthew 18 and such. Verses 22 through 24. Let's finish up the chapter. And the voice of the harpers and musicians and of the pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more in all in, uh, at all in thee. And no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee. And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. And the light of, the, of a candle shall no more shine at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall not be heard no more in all, uh, at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth. For by thy sorceries were all nations deceived, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. So God will cut off all joy, all happiness, all success from this system because by the sorceries of her the nations were deceived and in her violence the blood of the prophets and the saints were spilled. So ends Mystery Babylon. Next week, we're going to put some pieces together. I, I hope that you'll plan to be here for it. It's going to be very interesting, um, and I think it's going to help you as you look through some of these things to maybe connect some dots um, as per the spirit of Babylon and how it's functioning and how it has functioned in this world. For today, however, we apply. And we naturally are going to go in our application, as I mentioned, back to the exhortation of God for His followers. Come out from her and be not partaker of her sins that ye receive not her plagues. We spoke already of the tendency of God's people as it relates to the spirit of Babylon to want to have some concessions, to somehow not just be willing to accept the, the, the martyrdom and the scorn and such, which we are called to do, but rather to somehow become a part of that system, to, to, to live in her, rather than live apart from her. To give our money and our time to those who mock us and despise us and scorn us. It doesn't really make sense that Christ is our life and yet we, particularly in this time because media is so prevalent, and yet we spend so much of our time, our money and our effort supporting 
the very systems that mock us and scorn us. I mean, if you've ever seen, if, you, if, you've, if you've even read a summary of, of, of what happens now at the Video Music Awards or at the, at the Emmys, you know, where all the rich people go and give each other golden statues and such, Oscars, it, it, is, it is a shame. To, uh, they scorn Christ. They scorn his principles. They spit in the face of everything that the word of God tells us we are to be and everything that we ought to love. And yet Christians are still pouring how many millions of dollars into these institutions every year? How much of our time is going into these institutions every year? And there's something there that is just strange, is it not? That we are putting so much of our loyalty and our efforts and our time and our money into something that, that is not just contrary to the word of God, but that, that, that dislikes you for who you are in Christ. And to formalize this warning, to bring it home, to bring home the warnings, not just against media and such, but materialism and the aggrandizement and the luxuries and all of these things, the economic power, uh, political power, all of these things that that characterize the spirit of Babylon. I'd like us to go to 2 Corinthians 6. You can turn there if you'd like. We will have it on the screen as well. 2 Corinthians 6 begins with Paul speaking about his tremendous love for them. That the things that he is saying to them, he's saying in love for them, for their best good, even if they don't like it. Paul has proven his love for them and his love for the Lord. And he, he starts his... He starts his exhortation by saying that. And after that, he says this. Verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 6. O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. Ye are not straitened in us, but ye are straitened in your own bowels. Now, for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. The language here is a bit tricky, but what Paul is saying is this. He says, our mouth is open and our heart is enlarged. In other words, I'm being honest with you and I'm pouring out my heart to you. I'm enlarging my heart. My mouth is open to you. I'm pleading with you. And the honest and the difficult message that Paul is going to give them is this. He says, ye are not straightened in us. Notice it's not S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T-E-N-E-D. It's S-T-R-A-I-T-E-N-E-D. It's not talking about straight like a straight line. It's talking about straight like a bearing, like the bearing straight. Uh, a straight in, in geographic terms is a narrow passageway, right? It is something that is narrow. When Jesus says, straight is the gate and narrow is the way, he's not saying that the gate is straight in a line. He's saying it's constrained. It's like a narrow passageway between two larger points, like a straight in the sea. Paul says, ye are not straightened. You are not constrained in us. You are constrained in your own bowels. That's your emotions. That's your feelings. That's your lusts. Those are the things that constrained you. See, so many Christians see the doctrines of Christ as rules which keep you from having fun. That this is the thing that's standing between you and the fun of life. That this is the thing that's standing between you and what, what, what you really want. Rules that keep you from having what you want. That this is a constraining force. And Paul says, Christians, the exact opposite is true. 
The liberty of Christ is absolute, but your own sinful passions and your own sinful desires, they are what is straightening you. They are what is limiting you from the absolute joy and the blessing that is found in the Christian life. Babylon has it all wrong. The spirit of Babylon has it all wrong. The philosophy of Babylon is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It is live for today, live luxurious today, have what you want today, do what you will today, because there is no tomorrow. The philosophy of the world calls out to the human condition and says, we are reason, we are fun, we are happiness, we are fulfillment, we are lavishness, we are all of these things in stuff and in lust and in coveting and materialism and in sexual gratification. This is what you want and this is what will make you happy. And anything that doesn't let you have that is narrow and is constrained. And Paul says, wrong, wrong. Paul says that is a lie. The doctrines of Christ most certainly do forbid these things. They forbid the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The Bible says that is the darkness of this world, but they don't do so. The doctrines of Christ don't do that to constrain you. The doctrines of Christ warn you of these things to free you. The doctrines of Christ warn you of these things to free you from the bondage. It is not the world out there that is free while we submit ourselves to the bondage of this book. It is the world out there that lives in bondage to their sin and it is this book that frees you from that. That frees you from that. Our own lusts, our own bowels, as Paul says here, our own emotions, these are the things which hold us in bondage. And Paul says, as a recompense of the same, as a response to the biblical reality that it is the sins of the world that keep men constrained, that it is those very lusts, those lies of the world that say, do this and you will be happy. Do this and you'll find enjoyment. Do this and this is where fulfillment is. It is that, that lie, that, that is the constraint. And as a recompense to that lie, be enlarged. Throw yourself wholly, fully. Live fully in the freedom that has been purchased for you on the cross. Live fully in the liberty of Christ, which gives you freedom. Live Christ's way and you will be enlarged, not straightened. It is this philosophy of Babylon that straightens us. Be enlarged, Paul says. Recompense this lie by being enlarged in Christ. Now, where's Paul going with this? What's holding the Corinthians back from this liberty? Verses 14 through 18. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel, one that is not faithful, an unbeliever? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their people, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Be enlarged, Paul says. What does it mean to be enlarged? It means don't entangle yourself with unrighteousness. To whatever extent you entangle yourself with unrighteousness, you are entangling yourself with her plagues. God says, come out from Babylon, come out from among her, that ye be not a partaker of her plagues, right? 
To whatever extent a person stays in Babylon, perhaps somewhat of an allusion to Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. You recall Lot living in Sodom and Gomorrah and the two angels come and they seek to call him out of the city. And they have to literally drag him out of the city lest he be consumed in their judgment. And he lost children in that judgment. And he lost his wife in that judgment. Because though he had lived in the city and somehow maintained a level of separation, his children did not. And his wife did not. They went into the city and they started to merge a little bit with the city in thought and in desire and in deed. And when the judgment on the city came, they were overcome with that plague. They were overcome in that judgment. But if they had never been in the city to begin with, then they would never have been there when the judgment took place. Don't yoke yourself with the principles of unbelief. What fellowship does righteousness have with unrighteousness? What communion does light have with darkness? What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? Make no mistake, you are the temple of God. So enlarge yourself. Set yourself free. Pastor, it doesn't sound like it's setting myself free to set up a bunch of rules. Walk by faith. It is. You want freedom? Come out from among them and be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing. That's freedom. That's what the Bible says is freedom. You want to feel that freedom? Well, faith always precedes blessing. You got to take the step before you can know the results, before God will bless. Blessing comes after the faith, not before. So enlarge yourself. Come out from among them. Freedom is not found in sin. Sin is our default. Sin is the thing that, we're natural, that is natural to us. That is our nature. That is the thing which constrains us. That's what keeps us from the promises of God. That which holds us under the blindness of our own selfishness and self-righteousness and self-pity. Sin blinds our decisions. It binds those decisions to our emotions, our perceptions, rather than to truth. But how many of us have made these philosophies and these ideologies the expectations of unrighteousness a part of our lives? How many of us operate under the same material out outlook as the unrighteousness of the world? And so we bind ourselves, we bind our time, we bind our money, we bind our desire to things rather than seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness allowing all of the material things to be added unto us at the discretion of a loving God. That's freedom. Freedom is when I can say, God, thy will be done. I'm going to follow you. That's freedom. How many of us operate under the same philosophical outlook as the unrighteousness of the world? A world that calls evil good and calls good evil. A world that submits itself, it submits truth to feelings. That says feelings matter more than truth. That there is no truth except what I feel, except what I perceive, except my own pragmatic ends justifies the means. And we operate in this world binding ourselves to its precepts rather than binding ourselves to the freedom that comes from truth. In what ways are you yoked to the unrighteousness of this world? I'm not saying living in the midst of this world. We all live in the midst of this world. I'm not saying that. Using this world while not abusing this world. I'm not saying that. You can use this world while not abusing this world. That is a part of the liberty that you have in Christ. But are you yoked to this world? Are you bound by something in this world? Is there some way that you have actually yoked yourself to unrighteousness? That's the danger. I've already mentioned most natural applications to this question. In a material world, 
What constitutes your satisfaction? Is it in the things that you have and the things that you desire? Or are you, are, are you driven by your, your lust for the things that you don't have? But what about some other applications? Christians have gone well beyond this. We've fallen for the lies of the unrighteous world in any other number of ways. We've yoked themselves to the unrighteous philosophies of pragmatism. Ends justifies the means. Let us do evil that good may come. Some Christians have yoked themselves to philosophies that seek to tear down godly designs in society, family, the role of government, unrighteous philosophies of vengeance and of violence and of revenge and unforgiveness. These are all part of the darkness. And we could go on with philosophy after philosophy after philosophy. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is laying something on your heart. Don't ignore that. If He is. And what we read today is a God who described Babylon, this woman who He calls the great whore, the mother of harlots and of abominations of the earth, Mystery Babylon, the one with whom all the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the merchants of earth have made so much money. And as she is crumbling, God says, come out from among her because she's going to crumble. And if you are a part of her, then you will be overtaken in her plagues. But if you come out from among her, do so that you will not be overtaken in her plagues, in her punishments. Perhaps some of the reason why the church is where it is in America today. Perhaps some of the reasons why the church is where it is in the Western world today. Perhaps one of the reasons why the church is almost dead in Europe and is limping toward that in America today is because we have not come out from among the philosophies of the world, but rather we have bound ourselves to them. We are living in them. We are seeking to live in the same promises and lavishness of the world. And so we're, we're, we're yielding the same consequences. We're in the same miseries. We're dealing with the same anxieties and depressions. We're dealing with the same downfalls. And we're trying to solve them in the same manner. And the world looks at the church and it sees it powerless because we are. And we're powerless because we're no different from the world around us. We don't solve our problems differently. We don't have a different outlook. We, we go to the same uh, sources of wisdom. We go to the same humanistic uh, philosophers to solve our problems. We run to all of the same solutions. We have all of the same problems. We're not finding what we seek. And then we're powerless. Now, I'm not saying we as in this individual church. I'm saying we as the church at large here. But maybe that's you today. Maybe you've been dealing with some of these frustrations. Maybe you're wondering where the joy of the Lord, where the peace that He's promised, where the fruit of the Spirit is in your life. And you're not seeing it. And maybe it's because you've bound yourself to some sort of philosophy that exhibits more that which we would call the darkness of this world, unrighteousness, rather than that which exhibits the measure of Christ. That's one possible reason. And Paul says it this way. He says, come out from among them and be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing. You are not hindered in your freedom by Christ. Binding yourself to the law of Christ is not a hindrance. Much to the contrary, it's freedom. It is the false promises of unrighteousness that hinder us from living within the fullness of freedom that Christ has purchased for us on the cross. Freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom from, from sin and its consequences, uh, and, and the freedom to live in the power of the Spirit as He has ordained us to live. How are you doing today?
as we've studied Babylon, again, next week will be a little bit more practical. We'll, we'll dig into some history. We'll dig into some context. But it's all pointing back to this idea of Babylon. Where do you relate? Where do we as a church relate? Do we share in these same philosophies or have we come out from among them? Are we living separate? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.